We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Let me show you something here in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 9 and following. It says, with the mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Now, that at ostensibly, when you look at that, your thought might be, with the mouth, you can lie and slander, and that destroys people. But with knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. Tell you what that probably means is that with the mouth, you lead astray. Godless people can lie. Can that ever happen? Where they lie and lead you astray in important areas. And as but, in verse uh, 9b, that's the way you dodge the bullet. By knowledge, the righteous are delivered. If you know your Bible, uh, you have, a, uh, you, you have an, an immune system and the pigeons can fly around you, but they don't have to light on you that you can know what right and wrong is. I say that because if you'll turn over a page to chapter 16, a lot of the Proverbs are not just mentioned once, so you can kind of compare them. But in 1629, this is a parallel verse. It says, a man of violence entices his neighbor that you can do violence to somebody by leading them into a way that is a is, is to mislead them. By violence, a man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. Can lies destroy your life? They can. But with the knowledge, uh, through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. And so the idea here is that lies destroy the lives of naive people. You know what AIDS is? It's an acquired immune deficiency uh, syndrome to where you can't fight off infection. You can't fight, you don't die of AIDS. You die of everything that your immune system could have prevented, you died. It's possible to get moral AIDS where you have no discretion as to what is happening. You ever gone to a wedding where you said to your wife, hey, Keep the receipt on this gift because this couple don't have enough sense to come in out of the rain. They're going to get eaten alive if they get married. Lives can destroy. And the most, a matter of fact, the most destructive of all things are lies about areas that are essential, essential essence. In other words, there's a lot about material and matter and mechanics and mathematics that you may not understand because that's all talking about the world down here, what the philosophers call the lower story. But when you talk about where the universe comes from, what man is, what separates him from the animals, what is intuitive conscience, what is the human mind that can draw reasonable ideas, uh, what is right, what is wrong, what is woman, what is gender, what is sex, what is wrongdoing, 
in a, in a country, what were the most important things God gave to Israel? The Ten Commandments about God, about your parents, and about your moral duty to society. If you can do that, you can have a civil society. And so you can be right about matter, about mathematics, math, and mechanics, and you can ruin your life because you don't know what is called meaning, where they come from. That is why Israel was so far ahead of all other nations because they had a revelation from God that didn't merely give them the way to treat God, their parents, and right and wrong, and their neighbor, not to mess with his life and his wife and his possessions and his reputation and lie about him, that the Jew could open his Bible and see, in the beginning, here's God, and here's the heavens and the earth, and here's man in the image of God, and woman, and family, and right and wrong, and the image of God and other men. Uh, and so this is where evil came from. This is how it's going to be uh, remedied. The seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. And so the, the Jews always talk about how within Israel, you don't find a lot of philosophers or a lot of piano players. You don't find piano players because it's hard to pack a piano. That's what they said, because they'd move around so much. But the other one is that Jews didn't need philosophers because philosophy is born out of questions and Jews had nothing but answers. Does it help you to know that there's a God that predates everybody else, that made the heavens and the earth, that made you, that made your family, that made your fellow man, that there is evil, it's remedied by Christ and the, and the word of God? See, if that's all you know, you're okay right there. But if I was the devil, that's what I would lie to you about. I would lie to you about your origin, about God, about the nature of man, about right and wrong, about your moral duty. I would argue with you and lie to you about how far you could go in your treatment of your fellow man. And once I got you there, I'll let you go to any college you want to go to because I got your government and I just got your religion and you're a dead man. And so the most destructive things are what the mouth, the godless man can destroy his neighbor. Uh, you can't prove the nature of man empirically. You can't take a test tube and show what he is. You can't show right and wrong by a compass or by a weather vane. It's something that is above you that God must speak. And hence, the solution is knowledge. A body of truth that is revealed by God outside of man that is authoritative that I can trust. When you've got that, you're ready to go. When I see a kid that loves the Lord, loves his Bible, honors his parents, and is loving towards others, I say, kid, you are going to have one happy life. If you just stay your course, marry a person like you, have kids, kids that resemble you, where are you going to make your money? It don't matter. You're going to be happy. But if you know all the rest and you don't have that, you're going to believe something and it's going to be a lie. And now, as we say in Waco, Texas, you ain't got a cut dog's chance. You're going to go down. Uh, think about it like this. In Genesis, the serpent comes to the woman because Adam got stuff firsthand from God and he passed it on to his wife. He goes to the one that is least familiar with God. 
and he goes to her and he says, let's talk about, let's don't deny God. Let's talk about God. Has God said, and incidentally, in the narrative of Genesis 3, the fall of man, the name Yahweh is not used. In chapter 2, it is. The Lord God made man and woman and said, you're to rule over the creation and don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It uses the name Yahweh, the Lord. It's God's personal name that he relates to man. In Genesis 3, in that paragraph about the fall of man, Satan approaches Eve and he doesn't use the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. He uses just the generic Elohim. It's like being in a, a class at a college on comparative religion and you just talk about God, but you never talk about who he is. G-O-D is a very innocuous word. As soon as you say Jesus, the Lord God of Israel, now you're getting very definitive and you're going to rub the fur the wrong way. And so he says, has God said, let's talk Bible. Has God said you shall not eat of every tree? Has God given you restrictions? Eve said, of any tree of the garden, you can eat freely. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For he said, in the day you eat it, you shall die. You can't eat of that tree. Because that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a temptation. It's a test that you can know good and evil without God. It's, it's the invitation to be a secularist, that I can live my life and find good and evil, and I can do all the things that I need to do, but I don't need God. I can do it without him. And so he said, the day that you eat of it, as soon as you bite down, you shall surely, because you are alien to God. Now you can have enough sense that you can operate down here in life and build huts and families and all kinds like that and build cities. But as far as God, you are a astronaut that we have cut the tether on his spacewalker. Y'all ever see those movies where the guy's always doing a spacewalk and all of a sudden the cord is cut? All right. And he, he goes into the darkness. Now that's the most important part about a man or a woman is their connection to God. And so, has God said you shall not eat? You shall not eat. From you eat every tree, but you can't eat of that one, or you'll die. And the serpent said, Wrong, you shall not die. In other words, God's word is not true. And secondly, there is no punishment for transgression. That is a myth. And the reason it is a myth is that God in his nature is not good. His word isn't true, sin isn't bad because he lied to you. He is not good. And here's why. Because he knows that in the day you do it, God said in the day you do it, you'll surely die. He knows in the day that you do it, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. You won't need him anymore. God, Eve, is excess baggage. That's all he is. Get rid of him and fly, little bird. Escape, Madame Bovary. Did you ever read that? You weren't supposed to. Okay. If you'll just break the, break the cords of this G-O-D. It was one communist who said his greatest dream was to strangle the last priest on the guts of the last politician. All authority is removed. Anybody here remember the 60s? How many of you still have Dane Bramage? 
from the, and can't do long division because of the 60s, okay. Was that the mantra? That was the mantra. If it feels good, do it. Don't trust anyone over 30. Come away with me, little girl, on a magic carpet ride. Are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Talking about drugs. That the way that you find life is to get rid of God. And so he's not true. His just sin, sin is not bad because God can't be trusted. He is the worst thing ever happened to you was God. Follow me, follow the serpent. And Eve took her gaze and looked to the tree. And as one theologian said, Cornelius Van Til, she no longer lingered on the word of God. She now became a rationalist and began to think through it on her own. The tree is a delight to the eyes and it's pretty. And it is good for food. There is fruit on it. And it looks like the other trees. The only way you can know what is right is by the word of God. She put it aside and walked by empiricism and rationalism. What she thought and what she could test with her eyes. And she took it and ate it and gave to her husband. And here we are dying around us. Okay. The Bible says of the devil that he deceives present tense. The nations, plural. A lot of nations, a lot of gods, a lot of political systems, a lot of philosophies. They're all deceived by one person because all that they have in common is the rejection of the true God of Israel. When I was at North Texas, I had a professor in anatomy physiology named Dr. Tad Lott. Best until I got to seminary. I'd never had a prof that good. He would go up, start writing on the board, anatomy and physiology right off the top of his head, and he would teach us. And then he would sling that board back and keep on writing and keep on talking. And I remember him looking at us one time and saying to all of us cocky 60s guys, you should have seen my hair, it was so good. Uh, he looked at us and he said, I can tell you how anything in the human body works. Then he said, I can't tell you why anything works. He said, for that, you're going to have to go to Sunday school. Dr. Lott was smart. And so he said, I can know a lot, but when you get into meaning, we don't have a clue. You better have a Bible. Amen. And I never heard anybody challenge him and all the years I was there. Number one, because he was the smartest guy in the room. And number two, he was ruthless. He would slap you naked and hide your clothes. Okay. <laughs> in front of everybody. <laughs> I could give you a bunch of off-color remarks. He was, he, he was really good. <laughs> okay. Well, are you with me so far? One of the worst things that can happen to you are the people around you that lie to you about areas that are non-negotiable. So, at the end of verse 9... Through knowledge, the righteous will be delivered. That's how you dodge the bullet. It's not by introspection or like being like Yoda said, Luke, listen to your feelings. That's the worst thing you can do. Don't do like Eve and go by empiricism, what you think it says by looking at it. No, it is a body of revealed truth apart from men, from God, that you can trust that demands the righteous is delivered. You can't just learn it, you have to obey it. 
Biblical truth and holy living are inseparable because it's the very truth that unites you back with God. And so you learn your Bible. You know, I, I go to a gym sometimes that has a whole big bunch of TVs up there so you can run and watch the TVs. And there's about 20 of them. And I was just w watching them one day and thought, you know, everything up there was a lie. And I'm not trying to be old nasty Baptist on you, all right? I mean, I could go down the list, you know, and it kind of crescendoed in CNN down here, the Canaanite News Network, all right? <laughs> and I just looked at him and thought, yeah, this is just mental tripe that we're looking at. And yet, as discouraging as it was, I could go home and sit on my porch with perfect peace because I've got a wife that I love as Christ loves the church and she submits to me uh, at times like the church does to Christ. <laughs> we have children that are relatively normal. I'm not worried about being found out by having a clear conscience. Uh, I'm not addicted to anything. I'm not doing anything self-destructive because I happen to get converted in campus crusade and told me to read my Bible and I do it. I, and, I, and when I do a sin, I confess it. Are you with me? This is nothing grandiose. It's the simple life of a saved man with a Bible. And so I can sit on my porch while everybody is going berserk out there. Have you ever looked sometimes just at what is around us and want to throw yourself off a bridge? You, know, you just go, yeah, we have lost our minds. Saw on the TV the other day down in Dallas, there was a parade with drag queens coming down there. And parents were pushing their children to go stick a dollar in their garters in Dallas. Millennials raising millennials. And I just thought, gadzooks, would you look at this? I can remember growing up on the Lone Ranger and uh, Roy Rogers. And here we're, we're having our kids put dollars in the garters of drag queens lands. And yet I can sit in complete peace, even though, because we're on an island with a big river of feces going around us down into the dump, but we can have perfect peace. You know, Israel was set in the land of milk and honey. You had Syria, the Moabites, Ammonites, uh, Edomites, and the Egyptians that were all idolatrous and all murderous all around them. But Israel could be milk and honey because they had the word of God, and you can do that. And so, uh, how can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, by keeping it according to thy word. In the U.S. right now, would you agree that there's a lot of outcry going up about a lot of moral conduct? Murder, immorality, pedophilia, and on and on, and rape, and whatever and racism, and systemic racism, and you name it. This is a rough time. And the, the reason is because of three things. Going back 300 years ago, man set aside the Bible and looked inside of himself for truth. It was called the Enlightenment. And, and nature will always eat grace. Always. Whenever you don't have a Bible, nature, the physical world, will slowly consume the invisible. It'll take away mind, conscience, the dignity of man, right, wrong, children, human life, and slowly and surely, until finally, modern man will become 
a pair of bloody, gaping jaws that has eaten everything in itself, and all that is left is bloody, gaping jaws. And so if I wrote a book about present-day America, I would call it Bloody, Gaping, Gaping Jaws. It's the night of the living dead, and we've eaten ourselves. Because when you take away God, you don't know what anything else means. And in time, it'll just become natural, and you, you go to the jungle. And so there's a lot of stuff happening because 300 years ago, whenever Descartes came out of his room saying, I think, therefore I am, and I'm going to make the truth within myself, not God, we started this pressure and tension. And then in the 60s, it went, <coughs> and we had an earthquake. It shifted. What always happens after a massive earthquake? Tsunamis. They start rolling in. And here we had feminism. Here we had hedonism. Here we had homosexuality. Here we had the breakdown of the family. Here we got AIDS. Here we got all, now it just starts rolling in. Okay. Well, in all of the stuff that's happening, every time you have a mass shooting or a famous person overdose or a famous person die of AIDS, there's always this outcry from society and they want it fixed. How are we going to fix it? We're going to get the government to fix us. Isn't that brilliant? By whose authority are you going to say don't do it? But if you look, every time this happens, I'll always wait. And you got all the politicians posturing, making sure they look good. All right. And they're all proclaiming these bromides out here. We got to shut this down. This is bad. But you'll never hear the word God. You will never hear the word lie, sin, or evil. You'll never hear those words. You'll never hear the word right, wrong. You'll never hear the word repentance. You'll never hear the word forgiveness or heaven or hell. You'll never hear it. And so we're like a kid that has rebelled against the home, gone off and found himself up to his ears in locust and is consuming himself and continues to curse his parents because they won't do anything. But he will not say, I will go home and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and earth. Now, this won't happen as a culture. It'll just keep on going down. Can it, however, happen at an individual level when the lightning strikes? It's called the rebirth. And you can start seeing people born again out of it. And so, with that bit of encouragement, let's go to verse 10, okay? When it goes well with the righteous, these guys of verse 9 that know the truth and obey it, when you put them in government and it goes well with them, the city rejoices. In Israel, whenever you have a good king, it'll say, he followed the way of his father, David. When you got a bad one, he followed after the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that worshiped idols. David, Jeroboam, they all followed different paths. These are great guys. These are bad guys. When the wicked die, however, it says the city rejoices. Good. Man may argue over what is right and wrong until he sees it in front of him and he likes the good guys and he don't like the bad guys. That we're not going to argue about. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Which old witch? The wicked witch. Is anybody with me right here? We're talking about the Wizard of Oz, one of the great Christian stories. Oh. She's gone where the goblins go, below, yo-ho, yo-ho. And I forget the rest of it. Okay. 
Whenever wicked Queen Athaliah died, the daughter of, Je of Jezebel that killed 70 of the Judean descendants to make sure she got rid of the Messianic line, it said when she died, they put her to death, and it said the city was quiet. Ding dong, the witch is dead. When Jerob, uh, Jehoram, the wicked king of the north, died, it said God cursed him and his, his innards came out of him. I'll leave it right there. Okay. It said he died and they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. And he died, quote, with no one's regret. Praise God, he's dead. Praise God, David rules. No, lives show up empirically. You remember the great words of our former North Texas graduate, Dr. Phil? He'll be talking with some guy on the show and they'll start talking crazy. And he'll go, what's his great phrase, you remember? How's that working for you? Well, I'm on marriage six right now. Yeah, I thought so. How's that working for you? The Bible, because it deals with truth, can always come back and say, and how's that working? for you. Let me show you something. Keep your finger and just go to your left to, to Psalm 128. Uh, Psalm 120 through 134 are called the Ascension Psalms when Israel three times a year would go up to worship God. God made the nation, at least all of the men, come together three years for Promise Keepers rallies where they had to readjust their sights and to recognize God. We got to do that three times a year in Israel. And when they would go up and come home, they would sing these songs like we sing Christmas carols or uh, Easter uh, hymns. You would remember. And if you look at Psalm 128, watch the, what is called the um, ideological progression of the psalm. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, Yahweh. So we start with God and his word and of man's reverence for him. And in verse two, when you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Question, who is the you? Look at verse three, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine. So who is the you of verse two that is rightly related to God and he is blessing his crops? Who is it? I'm gonna ask you again. In verse 3, your wife will be fruitful. Who is the you of verse 2? The man. What's next Sunday? Father's Day, this good Father's Day message. And so we go from God to the head of the house, the man. And it says, uh, your children, I'm sorry, your wife is going to be like a fruitful vine. I'm going to tell you what a Hebrew scholar once said, that often in the Bible, the body of the woman is spoken of as a delightful vine because it's a place of delight, talking about the intimacy of a man and woman. I don't know if that's what this means, but I believe it, okay? And so your wife is going to be a fruitful vine, and as a result, your children are going to be like olive plants, not olive trees. They're like little sprouts that are going to grow into olive trees that give you light, that give you oil, that give you fruit, that give you wood that is the prettiest of all wood to shape in Israel. So we go with God to the husband, the wife, 
and then the kids. You can look at them and prophesy what's going to happen to this family because you've got a father in his place underneath God. And then in verse uh, three, they're going to be around your table. It's like a Norman Rockwell scene of happiness. And in verse four, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Verse five, the Lord bless you. Now he's talking to the reader. And may you see the prosperity of, what's the next word? Jerusalem. We've gone from God to the man, to his wife, to his kids, and now we've gone to the capital of the nation. Blessed will be D.C. because of you. And then it says, indeed, may you see your children's children. Those are your grandkids. You go to the next generation. And then, peace be upon, what's the last word of verse 6? Israel, the entire nation. Do you all see it? God, husband, mama, kids, the city, the grandkids, the entire nation. And it starts with the Lord, the fear of God in a man who's where he ought to be. Okay. You ever have to go to the chiropractor because your arms over here and you're walking like a figure eight or something. You're all twisted up. It's because you got these I was an anatomy minor. I know this stuff. Y'all have no idea what I'm talking about. You got these vertebrae sit on top of each other with this foramen that your spine goes down. It's nice and soft in between. It's called cartilage. Do y'all remember cartilage? <laughs> it was a great day. It really was. Would somebody please invent cartilage <laughs> and we'll all make some money? Yeah. But you got these things and they're a perfect S curve. I mean, if you were just some technician, you'd have made it straight. Then you're in trouble. It'll give with you like this. And it's got a fluid in there to protect your spinal column, a spinal fluid. That's why you get a spinal tap. And it's sterile. Nothing can touch it. What an amazing accident. <laughs> Two little half cells give you this thing. We can't construct one nowadays. But we, that's just what we get just because God, somebody's good. God doesn't need a spine, but we do. And so this thing is perfectly aligned with gravity. And it even gets to the top. You've got what's called an atlas and an axis. You can do this. Do that and listen to it. Can't you hear it? Yeah. Yeah. That's to let you do like this, where you're not always having to do like this. Amazing. What am I talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you hang around long enough and these things start pinching. Are you with me? All right. And you're starting to do this. The reason is because you have these nerves that come out from it. They're like telephone wires. You think it hits them, goes out, and your muscle responds. When you get that thing out of what is called alignment, it'll pinch them. And you start trying to take pressure off. All right. And you start looking, well, like me, <laughs> if you know what you you're all bent out of shape. And so you go to the chiropractor. And I remember first time I went to one, I thought he had killed me. <laughs> he went on my base of my spine. <clears throat> and I said, what is that? He said, you ever open a Dr. Pepper can? Yes. <laughs> he said, that's what you're hearing. 
It's not bone on bone. You're hearing this. It's pressure coming off of it. Oh, yeah. Ah. Thank you, Jesus. I've been healed. All right. He said, I'll be back in. We're going to do it and do it until finally we're going to get it where he said, you're supposed to have your head set atop that that axis upon that atlas, upon those thoracic and cervicals and lumbars, and they get bigger, have you noticed that, down there to support that weight? And they're perfectly in order, and you're meant to have it in alignment, and that's what gets it. Cairo means the hand, like karate, all right? And it just means that it's a hand movement to put it back in place. That's the way life is supposed to be. God at the head. And then the father, the mother, the kids, your neighbors, the city, the nation, it's supposed to flow. And every once in a while, you get it bent. And that's when the Bible, <clears throat> and it gets it back into place. All right, what am I talking about? Let's continue, okay. And so that is called influence. You have an influence. The, the father, the mother, the kids, they affect everything. It doesn't just have to be the entire nation. It's the use, the obedient guys affect the entire nation. That's why you look at verse 11, and, and back in Proverbs 11, and it says, by the blessing of the upright, the guy of verse 10, the guy of verse 9, by the blessing of the upright, he can be a blessing where he is just by his presence. One time I'm flying someplace when we're coming in and we got a lot of turbulence. We're bouncing around. And I look over to my left and there's this cowboy. All right. And he's throwing them down. All right. He's throwing these shots down because he's getting scared because we're caught in turbulence. And he sees me, a holy man, okay? And I'm reading my Bible, all right? And he just keeps watching me. And he leans over and he goes, you got anything in there for airplanes? <laughs> and I said to him, you just stick close to me. I said, I got to preach tomorrow and God's going to let me live. Now, you remember where God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is thinking about somebody who's in Gomorrah? Lot. How about if there's 40 guys there? I'll let it go for 30. 40. How about 30? I'll let it go for 30. I'll see you 30 and I'll raise you 10. How about 20? Yeah, 20. 10. For 10, I'll let them live. Did God find 10? Did he destroy the city? Did he answer Abraham's prayer? Nope. But did he answer Abraham's thought? What was the word Abraham never said? Lot. God knew what he was thinking. And we got Lot out. And it, they, when they took him out, Lot hesitated because he had become influenced by Gomorrah. And that's what happens to you. And the angel said something interesting. He said, come, because we can do nothing until you are out. Was Lot a blessing to that city simply because of who he was? Yeah, he was a believer. If you're married to an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians says, do not leave them if they consent to live with you. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. And the unbelieving wife by the believing husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they're holy. It's not just a pagan, but a pagan married to you. It's not just bad kids, but it's kids that come from you. Can Timothy have an unbelieving father, which he did, a believing grandmother and mother that taught him the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, and that kid end up being the sidekick of the apostle Paul in a mixed family. So you can bring blessing where you are. Laban to Joseph. Uh, I'm sorry, Laban to Jacob. I have divined that God has blessed me because of you. Egypt ended up a blessing to all the world because there was a guy in Egypt that was a Jew rejected by his Jewish brothers, put to death, but he's not dead. He is raised from the dead and they don't know it. And he goes away to the Gentiles, becomes the bread of life and is a blessing to all the world around him. Does that sound familiar to you? What's the guy's name? Joseph. And it says that he is a blessing to all of his day because of his presence and the presence of his brothers, the Jew. But then it says, a king arose which did not remember Joseph. Can that ever happen in a country that new guys get in power that have no recollection that it was God and his word and people that influenced them? And then all of a sudden they're plunged into darkness. And so let me just show you something. Preston, you got a picture of this? That's me. I'm not giving a papal blessing, all right? I know you're thinking that, but I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm in En Gedi in, in uh, Israel. We're on our cruise, our, our trip, and I've got all 60 Denton Biblers all around me. And we're at the Spring of the Wild Goats where David went to when he had fled from Saul. We're right by the Dead Sea. And here I am talking. That little road to my right goes on up the hill to En Gedi. And so I'm talking to 65 people there. You see, I got my Bible and... Uh, I'm blessing away. You see that girl right over my shoulder? That's a Jewish girl that was on a Jewish kid's trip. And they all went up and she heard me speaking about her king, David. And she didn't have a clue. Like most Jews, they're secular. She didn't have a clue. And she heard me, a holy man. <laughs> or something like that. She heard me and she heard me talking about her Bible, 1 Samuel, and about Samuel and Saul and David and how he could be anointed at 15, had to wait till he was 30 to get broken for 15 years, and then slowly and surely God brought him into his deal. And I talked about how you don't know what God's going to do. You just have to walk with him that day, and he'll show you the future. And that girl sat there, and I was watching my people as I'm teaching, and they would look at me, and then their eyes would cut over. And they were all mesmerized by this girl. Now, that is a classic picture from Romans 11 as the way it's supposed to be. Romans 11 says uh, that salvation has come to the Gentile to make them jealous. And here is a Scotch-Irishman, me, sitting here talking about a Jewish king and a Jewish Bible and the Jewish God as if I knew him with a whole bunch of fellow Goths and Visigoths around me. And this Jewish 12-year-old girl is mesmerized. That's called influence right there. 
You just influence them. I got saved because of a guy talking to my roommate about Christ. My roommate became a bouncer in a Houston topless bar. He didn't follow real close. I listened and I got saved. The man was an influence. He died uh, about 30 years ago. The guy led me to Christ and I called him and I thanked him. And I said, I don't want you to know, we got a church called Denton Bible. I speak a lot for the FCA. And I spoke up in Colorado, I said, and I had a guy who got greatly affected and committed his life to Christ named Bill McCartney. Who remembers Bill McCartney? He began what was called Promise Keepers. And I said, that's because you got into my life. And I couldn't hear him on the end of the phone because he was crying. That's influence. I prayed, and after I prayed, she was gone. Kendall said she turned into a bat. He always has a way of taking the edge off of a holy situation, I think. But I did. We prayed, I looked up, and she was gone. Who knows? That's influence. You never know who's listening to you. You never know. Me and my buddy, Ray Meckel. You back there, Ray? What? <laughs> he and I were meeting over in Decatur. We were having Bible study at Casa Torres. Uh, I got up. Headed off, Ray's getting ready to leave. Some ladies behind him with all a bunch of kids. And Ray just looked at him and said, it's so good to see a, see a bunch of well-behaved kids. And she said, well, it's great for me to see two men studying their Bibles. And uh, where do you go to church? She, she, he said, Denton Bible. I said, Tom Nelson, he's a genius and a good-looking man, as I remember. But anyway, they got to talking back and forth and just great fellowship came around just by a lady listening over our shoulder. And that's happened to us like three times at that restaurant of people just listening and coming in and saying, what are y'all doing right here? So you never know who's watching you. Uh, at the U.S. Bicentennial in, uh, when was our Bicentennial? 1976, right? Okay. <laughs> It's so far back. <laughs> yeah. They turned out a 12-volume set of American history. The guy that wrote it was a Harvard scholar. And he said, without any discussion, the greatest influence on America for th these 200 years was the influence of the Puritans and their flight from England and their coming to Massachusetts and the place that became the hub of that early nation, Boston, filling it with the Puritan worldview. A worldview is when you look at the dots, how you connect them. Nature, man, woman, morality, gender, nations, conduct, your fellow man. We all religions look at those dots, but they don't know how to connect them. They've got matter, but they don't have meaning. You only get meaning by God telling you their origin, their purpose, and their destiny. And so... America had a world view of God, the Bible, fellow man, the basic liberties of man, and later on what we would call inalienable rights from nature's God. Where'd we get that? And so that was the greatest influence on our country was the Jew. Genesis, y'all ever heard of the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you land the promised land, and I'm going to fill it with people. 
You're going to have a great seed come forth from you, the Jewish people. And then he said, blessing, that in you shall the nations be blessed. As a matter of fact, he said, in your seed, singular, will the nations be blessed. You and I, most of us in here, are Gentiles. Are we all blessed by one particular child of Abraham who happened to be the son of David that became the son of God to us and showed us who God was, what man should be, then died to bring us back together, opened our eyes to his word, and has blessed our lives. God said, in you shall the nations be blessed. Influence. God has done all of this through Christ. And so, lies destroy, knowledge delivers, and the righteous man can bless his civilization. Uh, let me show you something else. Go to your right to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation is not just the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of all things. It's the book that most shows you the end of man, end of time, end of history, end of government, end of religion. It's the great book of Satanology as to who he is. It pulls all back all the drapes. You just got to read the other 65 to get to it. And in chapter 12 and verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, that is Israel, and the tribulation in the last days. Sun, moon, stars, she's the lady of light, and that is what Israel is. Genesis 12, Abraham, you're going to have a nation. What took place in Genesis 11? The Tower of Babel and the birth of the spawn of the devil, the nations, and their idolatry. I'm going to give you a nation, Abraham. We're going to start with just one man, so nobody can say that men did it. It was an act of God. And what do you think the 12 stars are? The 12 points of light, the 12 tribes. Israel was the light of the world. And in verse 2, she's with child and gives, cries out to give birth. And there in verse 5, she gives birth to a son, a male child, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Question, who is the male child of Israel that will someday bring peace on earth. Yes, Jesus. But if you'll look at verse 4, the devil, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. Satan is going to persecute Israel in the last days. Threw them to the earth. He killed them. And the dragon, Satan, stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that when she gave birth, he would devour the child. Do you all remember whenever Christ was born? There was someone waiting for him. Who was it? A Roman. It was Herod and wanted him dead. Who is the dragon that wants Jesus dead? It is Satan. But if you'll look in verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness, had a place prepared by God, nourished for 1,260 days for three and a half years. Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, where it shouldn't be. Antichrist in the holy place, take off to the wilderness, and you see that God is going to protect that nation just like he did Israel in Exodus in the wilderness for three and a half years. But if you'll notice, Satan wants her dead. And so in verse 13, the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth. His decline has begun. He persecuted the woman. He hates Israel. And in verse 14, those that wait upon the Lord shall mount up their wings as eagles. Two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman that she could fly into the wilderness. Verse 15, Satan lost her, so 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. If you flee into the wilderness, one of the things that can get you killed is a flash flood. And so the water pours out of the devil to kill her. Uh, what will a flood take away? Everything. It is called a genocide. Satan wants them all dead. It is called a holocaust, a total burning. He wants them dead. Why? Because they are the sun, moon, and stars. We owe to Israel our view of God, our view of the family, of man and woman, of, the, of, of uh, everything that will come from the Bible that we got it on the ricochet because they didn't want Christ and he came to us. So everything that we have in what is called noble in Western civilization comes from the East. It comes from Israel. That's incidentally why we talk about people getting reoriented. It's a term for taking your eyes and looking back to Israel and the Word of God, the Orient, the East. Reorient. Look back to God. Okay? And so the devil hates the woman, hates her son, and... In verse uh, 17, he can't kill her, so he's going to kill somebody else. The dragon is enraged with the woman. He hates Israel and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. They are not Jews, but they are the rest of her children that are born of God's grace. Who are the rest of her children? Well, in the tribulation period... This is the non-Jew, the Gentile, that will believe in God through the message of the 144,000 of Israel. Today, you can transfer this truth into our today. Question, does God hate Israel today? I'm sorry. Does Satan hate Israel today? <laughs> Delete that. Interesting. Uh, okay. Does Satan hate Israel today? Yes. Does Satan hate the Jew? Yes. Does Satan hate Jesus? And he would love them all dead if he could. But does he also hate the Gentile that has come to the knowledge of Israel's God through Christ? Today, who would that be? It's you. So I can say from this text, Satan hates God. He hates Israel. He hates Jesus, he hates the Jews, and he hates you. And he would love to kill you if he could. Because you, when you've got people captivated in the darkness, the last thing he needs is you as the light of the world. Setting people free, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need people delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's dear son. He does not need people in the strong man's house that are plundering his possessions. And that's what we are. So we have got a birthmark on us of a bullseye. And he wants us dead because we influence people. Well, let me read you here something and we'll go. I'm talking about influence. Uh, this is a, remember what next week is? It's Father's Day. This is a great book. It's written about Sarah Edwards. It's called Marriage to a Difficult Man. Okay. And it's a, a book about Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American preacher, about his wife. Listen. Quietly carrying the drudgery that freed her husband to study, 
Jonathan Edwards would eat, get up, and go to his study and spend time in study. And the woman, Sarah Edwards, carries the house. She managed to train a brood of children whose social contribution is a phenomenon of American history. In 1900, A.E. Winship tracked down 1,400 of the descendants of Sarah Edwards and John Edwards and published a study of the Edwards children in contrast to the Jukes family, a notorious clan who cost New York State a total of $1,250,000 in welfare and custodial charges. Jukes wasn't actually the name of the other family. The word Juke means to roost. And it was used as a slang term about them because the family were social floaters with no home or nest. They all originated with one immigrant who settled in upstate New York in 1720 and produced a tribe, quote, of idleness, ignorance, and vulgarity. <laughs> New York, okay. A.E. Winship learned that a descendant of the Edwards presided over the New York Prison Commission in 1874 when it conducted an inquiry into the Jukes matter. It was an Edwards that presided over the, the inquiry. Only 20 of the 1,200 Jukes ever gained gainful employment. The others were either criminals or lived on state aid, whereas the Edwards family contributed astonishing wealth to the American history. Whatever the family has done, it has done ably and nobly, Winship said, and he went on much of the capacity and talent, intensity, and character of those children of the more than 1,400 Edwards descendants was due to Sarah Edwards. In 1900, when Winship made his study of the Edwards, this single marriage had produced 13 college presidents. This is in 1900. 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and the dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and the dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the U.S., and a controller of the United States Treasury. The members of the family wrote 135 books. They edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered the ministry in platoons and sent 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many missions boards with their trustees. Many large banks, banking houses, insurance companies have been directed by them. They have been owners or superintendents of large coal mines, iron plants, vast oil interests, silver mines. There is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of the Edwards family among its chief promoters. The family has cost the country nothing in pauperism, crime, hospitalization, or asylum service. On the contrary, it represents the highest initiative. And then he concludes, has any other mother contributed more vitality to the leadership of a nation? The preacher's wife. Influence. Father in heaven, we live in a world in the dark. We didn't ask for the Enlightenment. We didn't ask for the 60s earthquake. And we didn't ask for the uh, tsunamis that are sweeping Western civilization. But we're here, born for such a day as this, to use our influence like Esther and Mordecai to do great good for the people of God. And so I pray as the world sweeps in this polluted river to an ocean of pollution, 
that we sit on an island safe, secure, enlightened, loving, and consistent with reality because of the light of God's Word. I pray that we would be a lifeline looking to those crying out. And Father, I pray if there's any man or woman in here this morning that when asked the question, if they would die, where would they be? And they would give the wrong answer. That I will be in heaven because I have been so good. I have joined the church. I've sung in the choir. I have gone through confirmation. I was baptized. But they do not share the life of God that comes through faith alone and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what the Holy Spirit calls men to, is to glorify him and in so doing, to glorify the righteousness of God. And so I pray for that one person. Lord, they are so dead in their sin. They cannot hear what I am saying. And if they heard it, they would not agree with it. They cannot weep for their sin. And so we will simply grieve for them. And pray that as you reached into our lives, you would reach into theirs. And maybe this very day, they would invite the living presence of the Son of God who said, uh, I am with you always to come into their lives. And the Holy Spirit of God in response to efficacious grace might kill them and raise them up anew, crucified with the life of God. And Father, we'll ask all of this in Christ's name and for his sake. And all God's people said,